if you want a completely free Linux bug for bug compatible, I'm not going to say you're SOL at this moment. How about Microsoft? They have a shot here too if they wanted to. Yes. I mean, so here's the amazing thing. This whole thing hits on a lot of the, call it the goodwill in this community. And when you have a huge amount of goodwill and then you throw it away like this, suddenly it opens the doors. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hi, everyone. Hi, Shaheen. It's great to be with you again. Good to be here, Doug. Great topic today. I'm looking forward to it. Well, very timely topic. We have with us Joe Landman. He is an independent HPC consultancy in Ann Arbor, Michigan, called Nlytic, N-L-Y-T-I-C. I love that name. And in a past life, for about 14 years, he ran Scalable Informatics. He's also been with HPE, involved with Shasta Supercomputing Systems, and he's a thinker in the whole HPC open source software sector. Joe, is that a fair thumbnail sketch? Well, I think you missed ballet dancer, but otherwise, yes. <laughs> That's good. Now, the topic of today is this firestorm that exploded about almost three weeks ago in the Linux community around Red Hat, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and changes that were announced. It's led to a lot of statements, back and forth emails. Greg Kurtzer of CIQ and Rocky Linux has been very active in this area. Joe, maybe Shaheen, if you agree, Joe could just start off by giving a quick overview of what's happened. Absolutely. Great. So I'll give my take on it. And of course, I you know, please feel free to correct me. I'll go through in whatever depth you'd like. But the idea in a nutshell is Red Hat EL Linux, the dominant North American Linux supplier as, as the CentOS project, once referred to them as, decided recently to place all of its patches and source behind a paywall. And mm. that paywall has additional restrictions on what you can do with the data that you pull down or code that you can pull down. Specifically, you can't redistribute it. And while this might seem innocuous to most people, this has a very interesting side effect for the 100% bug-for-bug compatible rebuilds, if you will, of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Those rebuilds include, of course, Rocky Linux, Alma Linux, the Oracle Enterprise Linux. It used to include Scientific Linux, but Scientific Linux was discarded in favor of using CentOS, and then CentOS itself changed its focus to the CentOS stream model, which is more of a rolling update. Most people who've been using the Red Hat EL rebuilds really want something similar to a Red Hat EL experience, but they don't necessarily want the support that Red Hat offers or the economics don't justify them paying, say, you know, 10,000 nodes at X dollars per node on a per year basis. So yeah, I mean, it, it changes a lot of the dynamics because now Rocky or Alma or any of these other firms can't necessarily according to the paywall agreement that you have to sign up for, you can't go and pull these things down, rebuild your patches, pulling out all the appropriate IP, and then offer that as your own. So that means that these 100% bug-for-bug rebuilds can no longer really be 100% bug-for-bug rebuilds. And that's got a number of people asking questions about 
how and what to do longer term, what they should think of the current situation, and basically how to move forward. There was a time when there were a lot of different operating systems out there. VMS, MVS, VM, Primos, and then OS Unix. 360. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and then Unix came about to unify it all. And if you were running Unix, you were a lot more compatible than before. And then we had the big Indian, little Indian, and then that got resolved. And then when Linux came about, it was Nirvana. We were just all the same kernel. Fast forward to where we are now, there are distros, licensing issues, and then there is the physical distribution of that. And you have to package the software. The whole notion of open source at some point was, hey, you know, I just want to code and I just want to contribute. And, you know, I'm not here to make money off of it. But then after a while, most of the contribution came from people who were actually employed. So is this a first world problem? You know, your Linux is not good enough. Why, why bother on whether you're buck for buck compatible? It's just a matter of what vendors will support it at the end of the day. So a good example is, say, our friends over at NVIDIA with, with the Mellanox network DPUs and, and whatnot else. Their drivers are usually restricted in terms of the numbers of OSs that they'll actually support. When I say that, going back to your point of Linux being Linux, Linux is Linux. Linux, understand, is, is a kernel plus a user space. And the packaging that sort of ties us all together and the management systems and the different distros are just slightly different user spaces, slightly different kernels, and they fundamentally are really very compatible as long as you're not doing anything crazy, like, I don't know, using InfiniBand or or <laughs> using Luster. You know, you go try to run Luster on a 6.4 kernel, I'm not sure it'll work. I, I've not played with it on mm, 6.4 kernels, but, you know, the, the whole idea is that if you stick with what each project supports, what they build against, then you're much more likely to have something that works without any sort of odd problems, which you would have to support. Curiously, this is a huge echo of the situation in the early, I'd say the early to late 90s, back when we had BSD flavor Unix, System 5 Unix, and all sorts of differences. And I remember while at SGI, trying to work with vendors to help them port to a different Unix, just because system calls were slightly different. And there's effort involved in that. There's time and materials and what else. And then that increases your support costs because now you have this whole additional platform to run regression tests on, to make sure the changes you're doing are compatible. And that's Mm -hmm. actually the world we find with Linux these days. Mm. Yes, it's a kernel. Yes, it's a user space. But everyone packages things slightly differently. And so that bug-for-bug compatibility, the desire is there fundamentally to make sure that drivers work, that everything's well-tested. So if everyone is building for Red Hat Linux, and I've got a bug-for-bug compatible version of that Linux, and I try to install that driver, that should just work. And generally, it does. Now, how much of that, or is that because the software stack is taller, and when we say OS, we now refer to a much bigger thing that isn't just the kernel and the basic tools, but it's got, like you're saying, hundreds of other packages and they need to be packaged and built just so. So now that becomes the new thing. Is that what's going on or? 
Yeah, I usually classify this in terms of what I call a dependency radius. The mm. more stuff your package depends on, the more brittle it is with respect to those changes. The that compatibility means... matrix. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a compatibility matrix. And the larger footprint you have on that compatibility matrix, because you're using up more slots on it, you know, the more brittle your, your system is. It's very hard to install a picking on InfiniBand drivers. I, I really shouldn't. I, you know, they do a good job, actually. Yes. <laughs> Mellanox and NVIDIA do a terrific job of those. But there are other things that, that I've used in the past where the drivers are just horribly incompatible between minor revisions in the kernel. So you go, you go update your system and suddenly your libc has changed ever so slightly. There was a bug fix and now a call doesn't work precisely the same way or in the kernel itself, there, there's been a very slight change to the specific functionality, not really functional, but maybe the way the specific system call operates. And now a service which used to work perfectly is now doing a hang loop or mm. some strange thing. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, you, you can argue that it's due to the footprint, the compatibility matrix. You can argue it's due to the kernel. You can argue it's due to many other things. Regardless, where we are today is with this sort of environment where the bug for bug compatible takes a lot of the cognitive load off of system managers and system architects plate. They no longer have to worry about, do I have to build my own luster in order to make this thing work? And I say that as somebody who used to have to build his, yeah, his own current yeah, luster yeah. stuff. So then IBM buys Red Hat some years ago for a big chunk of change. And then fast forward to a couple of years ago, Red Hat buys CentOS and that distribution. By then, there were other distributions that relied on Red Hat, Enterprise Linux, Alma, Oracle, et cetera, et cetera. And then once they bought CentOS, that changed things, and that led to Rocky Linux to come about. If you don't mind, take us through like what happened there as a prelude to what is happening now. Certainly. At the very beginning of CentOS, not really very beginning, slightly after it was formed and in operation, I believe Red Hat had sent over some cease and desist letters to the CentOS org saying you can't use our copyrighted IP. So there was pushback from the CentOS organization and they went through and set up a way to pull all the Red Hat copyright IP out so that they were no longer redistributing copyrighted IP without, without any sort of mm. license. So that sort of set the tone, if you will. This was around CentOS 2-ish, CentOS 3-ish timeframe. I mean, it was really, really early. So that's sort of set the stage. And so CentOS has always had, CentOS or CentOS, I, I've said it both ways for many years. I apologize. Me too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think but, it wants to be CentOS, but I hear they want to pronounce it CentOS. Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, I get yelled at when I say PostgreSQL uh, versus <laughs> Postgres, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's basically tomato, tomato. So uh, the CentOS organization has always had a wary eye looking at Red Hat, knowing that, you know, they could do some things and make sure that they were working within their boundaries so that they didn't annoy the Red Hat company. Instead of getting into a protracted legal battle over that, they stayed within the confines of what they needed to do up until the point where Red Hat acquired the project. Once Red Hat acquired the project, that became interesting because Red Hat made a promise, something to the effect of, 
we're really not going to change very much at all. We just don't want any redistribution of our copyrighted IP, which again, it had already been taken care of, but they basically said, we're, we're not going to change very much. Now, at this point in time, Rocky Linux and Alma Linux didn't exist, but CentOS did, Scientific Linux did, White Box mm. Linux did, a bunch of others did. And the idea behind those was, you know, hey, we, we can rebuild this and add in our own value, maybe make, make sure that we build things into, into the kernel. Or So some of these, the White Box Linux was a bug for bug compatible. Scientific Linux, I think, had some extensions in it. But the idea was very much within the, the spirit and language of the licensing. And so that people ecosystem flourished. People deployed large clusters, large HPC installations with CentOS. They built cloud instances with CentOS. And then after IBM bought Red Hat and realized, hey, you know, we have a revenue opportunity here. What we need to do is we need to turn out a way to monetize all those folks this is my supposition, by the way, so I could be I could be totally off base, but they're looking at ways to how do I monetize all these folks who are building basically using, again, the free open source bits of Linux plus some of our contributions and calling that bug for bug compatible. How do we make sure we capture revenue from those folks? And so what Red Hat initially did is they said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cease putting out individual sent OS releases that reflect exactly the, the Red Hat EL releases. So as of like CentOS 8.3 or 8.4, that was the last point release of the operating system. So that's sort of the latest you can build. But what they did do instead is they said, look, we'll release this as a rolling update. So as patches and features become available, they were going to place those into the distribution, and they call that CentOS Stream. This is literally the point where if you go with CentOS Stream, you no longer have a bug-for-bug bug compatible version of Red Hat. You have no guarantee your InfiniBand is necessarily going to work, or your GPU, or any of these other things. Wouldn't and it eventually you, catch up, though? Aren't you just simply late? Yeah, you, you could be late. I mean, a, a, a delay would, would not actually be a bad thing. It it's more fine. than just a delay, you mean, you're saying? It, it's more than just a delay. It's, hey, you know, maybe there was a critical feature fix or a critical bug fix for security reasons in the supported Red Hat EL product, but not in the CentOS stream. That may show up, you know, weeks later, months later, in which case, you know, what do you do about it when you have, say, 10,000 nodes sitting there potentially vulnerable to this sort of scenario? Mm-hmm. So this late 2020, it was December of 2020, when Red Hat said they would stop supporting CentOS. So yep. that's kind of a precursor to what's going on here. You know, they were trying to migrate people over to RHEL, I assume. They wanted to make it harder. I mean, my argument was they wanted to make it harder for Oracle to actually release Oracle Enterprise Linux, which was not surprisingly at that time, I don't know if it's changed, but it was a bug for bug rebuild of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So they basically grabbed CentOS uh, source. They changed the copyright IP to be Oracle. They did add in some of their own bits. I believe they have DTrace support directly in the kernel and DTrace user space. And they have a couple of other things. I don't know if they're offering ZFS in their kernel 
but you you can always install OpenZFS because hey, OpenZFS is built against CentOS and it's built against Red Hat, so you're pretty much guaranteed you can get those features and that functionality. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the, I believe that at that time the CentOS was not the target of that. Now, again, I could be wrong. I'd love to speak with other people to find out their their views on this. Mm. But once they targeted Oracle with this, CentOS really became collateral damage. And now people are starting to ask the question, what do I do with this? You know, I'm about to build a huge cluster. I'm about to stand up 10, 20,000 nodes. What do I run on them? And this is where the Rocky Software Foundation basically stepped up. The Alma Linux folks stepped up. They said, we will come up with a way to do this. And they basically did. They did it basically by the thing which the mechanism of pulling the patches and uh, patch source directly down from the GitHub repository and building with that to preserve that bug for bug compatibility. The whole kerfluffle occurred because Red Hat closed access to that. I see. That's, so now you can't go to GitHub. Happened. You have to go to their customer portal, and that's a paywall. But I want to yes. confirm with you that CentOS Stream is just simply a delayed release of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, or is it not, completely something else? It's not really Red Hat Enterprise Linux. It is. I see. It's built from the same sources, or I should say very similar sources. There are time delays, I believe, between what gets deployed into Stream versus what gets deployed into Red Hat Enterprise Linux. But is there a guarantee that eventually it'll have everything? I don't think there's a guarantee. It's sort of a, you know, caveat emptor, you know, use at your own risk. So it's a junior distribution that may or may not reflect the real thing. Yes. And what, what I find interesting is I've seen Red Hat employees specifically talk about how Red Hat Enterprise Linux is actually a specific fork of Fedora Linux, not CentOS. So what that means to me is that if you find the appropriate Fedora patches and whatnot else, that's happening at a much higher frequency than the CentOS patches. Mm -hmm. It's happening at a much higher frequency than the Red Hat EL patches. But that suggests that the CentOS stream is sort of like an orphan distribution, it's there basically because Red Hat knows they have to provide something. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask you what other options people have. If Yeah, I was going to say, what should people do in this situation? Well, it depends on what they want, though. I mean, if you want a completely free Linux bug for bug compatible, I'm not going to say you're SOL at this moment. The CIQ and Rocky Linux Foundation have a mechanism that they've worked out, and I think probably discussed with their lawyers and asked questions of risk and what and else. And they said, yeah, you know, we can come up with a way to, to do this. But the dam broke on this, like over the weekend. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, th- this past weekend, suddenly out of nowhere, the SUSE Linux guys who've been building their own distribution for many years, it's a very competent distribution. A lot of enterprises have used it in the past. IBM used to ship it all over the place prior to their acquisition of Red Hat. And SUSE Linux, the SUSE uh, company basically said, you know, this is what we're going to do. Not only are we going to continue to offer SLES, S-L-E-S, their enterprise version of Linux, we're also going to fork Red Hat EL Linux. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> so now, Sousa, working with with uh, CIQ and Greg, and th- there was a press release on this yesterday or today, and uh, are basically coming out and saying, hey, look, you know, we'll, we'll support it this way. And they're not the only ones. The good folks over at Oracle basically are saying, hey, Red Hat and IBM actually really saying, hey, IBM, what are you doing? Look, if you're making the arguments you're making and, you know, it really is economic and you, you want to make sure you can pay people, if you want, you guys can basically pull patches from us and be our downstream thing because we're going to pay the engineers to make all these changes anyway. So I, I found that... Interesting. Yeah, I, I found that fascinating. It is fascinating. <laughs> How about Microsoft? They have a shot here too if they wanted to. Yes. I mean, so he, here's the amazing thing. This whole thing hit on a lot of the, call it the goodwill in this community. And when you have a huge amount of goodwill and then you throw it away like this, suddenly it opens the doors. And I've been arguing for a couple of years or arguing, I've been thinking for a couple of years, really, that Microsoft would make a move in this space because, I mean, they are pretty much the standard desktop and whatnot else for corporate America they could very easily come out with an enterprise Linux that would be supported and what else. And honestly, I don't see any anyone who could stop them if, if they did this. If they wanted to, that's right. Yeah. I mean, they're an absolute juggernaut. They know how to sell to corporate customers. They could wrap this up in, in, their, in their existing support contracts. They could handle pretty much anything. And Microsoft are getting very competent around Linux in general. So mm-hmm. this is a non-far-out possibility. Amazon could do something here. And Google could do something. And let's see, the folks who seem to be, I'll say, somewhat neglected here, but really not, is an organization by the name of Canonical. Canonical mm, that's right, yes. makes Ubuntu. And Ubuntu Linux is generally speaking, a very competent distribution. And it turns out it's pretty much the standard distribution for people doing any sort of AI or or data science. You typically are using a Ubuntu distribution because their user space, remember, as I said, mm, that's this right. collection, this, this package matrix, and their distribution has much more up-to-date, more modern packages than Red Hat has. So the end result of that is that your late model software, which which all the data scientists and AI engineers are, are building, it's much more likely to work on that platform than it is on other Linux distributions, which curiously takes us back to the 1990s with all these different flavors of Unix. I was just going to say, Joe, it, it sounds to me as though we're moving toward a highly decentralized Linux environment. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, what do we really need? We need sort of a very simple baseline set of services. We need to be able to boot a machine up. We need to be able to make sure that all the networks work, all the GPUs work. And then from there, honestly, for from an HPC standpoint, the operating system should be like a detail of the job. What did you build the software under? And, you know, either run it as a container, which again, the, the CIQ guys are pretty familiar with, as it turns out. You can do it as a diskless boot type scenario. I've written a bunch of stuff. Back when I was at Scalable, I wrote this beautiful RAM boot-based boot, 
which gives you a full Linux operating system. And I didn't care which version. It worked with CentOS, worked with Debian, it worked with Ubuntu. I haven't supported anything else since then. But, you know, the, the basic idea is that you can do this and make the operating system that you boot with a detail of your job, make it part of your, your node initialization. And, you know, darn it, this, you, you can do all sorts of really wild things with this just as long as you don't get too caught up in which distribution is quote unquote better, because mm. they're all really about the same. It doesn't actually matter which distribution you use as long as your software can interact with the various pieces and, and make stuff work. So, you know, this is turning out to be the kind of watershed moment that some people thought it would be. But along those lines and what you're saying, there is another school of thought that was saying the OS just doesn't matter as much as it did some years ago. So if you mess with it at this point, you might just point that out to everybody. <laughs> is that is that a yeah. risk? Yeah. Well, I, I very much agree with that. I mean, as, as long as all your devices work and they work reliably, you should be fine. The flip side to that is, of course, occasionally you run into some bugs in some software at various previous employers, we've used GPFS, we've used, or I'm sorry, Spectrum, I, I think it's called now. Spectrum scale, Spectrum scale. Yeah, we use those things and they have, occasionally we run into bugs or we run into issues with those packages and folks like IBM who provide those packages don't necessarily want to support something that they've never seen before. Right. And, right. and that's why... You know, as much as you might say, hey, it's just an operating system, it's just a kernel, you know, it's it's all basically the same. It is, but it's not. And what Red Hat was has been really good at and still is very good at is selling the idea of we're going to be compatible and we're going to be compatible for this period of time. We are providing predictability for for the enterprise market. Right on, right on. Excellent, excellent. And I, just a final point, Red Hat's perspective, how would Red Hat make money other than by selling <laughs> RAGL. The point being that they are looking for to be remunerated for the software work that they're doing. Otherwise, how can they make money? Well, curiously, when open source really got going, I guess the running joke, and I hate to call it the running joke, but really it is, was that you'll make money on the support. Right. And, uh, right. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you remember from those days, but almost nobody made money from support. So what Red Hat did is they figured out the magic formula. And the magic formula is go speak to the folks who are going to use us within businesses, find out what, the, what their pain points are and offer a direct solution to those pain points. And the pain points for them, for example, SunOS to Solaris transition broke a lot of software. IRIX 5 to IRIX 6 broke a huge mm. amount of software. AIX transitions, all these things broke software. And people didn't want to have to requalify their software on the systems. And what Red Hat said is, you buy into our model, and we're going to guarantee we're not going to break your software. Mm. And that is huge. And again, Red Hat has done an absolute bang-up job and thrilled by that. And to, you know, to many corporate folks, Linux equals Red Hat. The difficulty is that Red Hat has benefited from this large extended ecosystem. And while, yes, they are contributing patches, they are contributing changes to, to the software, they're contributing engineering know-how and what, what else, they're not the only ones doing that. 
Now, seeking to monetize it, I think they could have done a much better job. Their communication was rather badly off. They could have approached this in a way which they could have gotten people to buy in to their vision. They could have actually worked with the rebuilders, with the Rocky Software Foundation. They could have worked with Alma Linux, even Oracle, and said, look, guys, we want to make sure that we're getting, you know, we are monetizing this. Now, you can either help us or not. If, if you help us, we will look at doing things like making stuff available to you early. We'll give people an easy on-ramp to support and maybe even give them discounts, you know, depending on the size of their systems. And that giving them priority for bug fixes and whatnot else. There are so many other better ways to do what they were trying to do that I, I, I'm surprised somebody didn't review this beforehand and say, maybe we should approach this a different way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little too blunt. Yeah. Well, I want to invite our listeners to comment on this. Come to us because this thing is going to continue for a good while. And I'm uh, hoping that we can come back to you, Joe, to get the latest. Certainly. I'd love to talk about that or pretty much anything else in HPC. HPC, absolutely. In fact, I also want to point out that your blog is what got us to this point because you have quite a good set of blogs that are covering all various topics that I also want to encourage people to go read. Excellent. Yeah, it's at scalability.org. Feel free to browse. And I feel definitely the need to comment on the very rapidly changing high-performance computing AI machine learning universe. So yeah, I love people to comment certainly on the podcast. And if there are any questions or comments, I'd love to see those and corrections as well. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. We've been with Joe Landman of the HPC Consultancy Analytic in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Joe, thanks so much for your time. Certainly. It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you, Joe. Take care. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.